0: Welcome to the Hedgemaker broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Go to the Gospels. We're going to look at all four of the Gospels just a little bit with this message on why do we celebrate Palm Sunday. I asked myself that question looking for the messages for Palm Sunday and next week's Easter. What is the purpose for celebrating Palm Sunday? Why do we observe it? We don't do a whole lot as some of the other churches do with palm branches and different other things that might be done in a number of churches. But we can certainly ask the question, what was the original purpose of the observance? That's more or less what I'm going to focus on this morning. And then why we should keep celebrating the Sunday before the Resurrection, Palm Sunday. Always the Sunday before Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Now the basic purpose. Here's the answer to the question, why was Palm Sunday observed? The basic purpose of Palm Sunday activity was to proclaim Jesus Christ as King. So that's going to be our emphasis here this morning. And the outline is going to focus on that. The credentials of the King, the coming of the King. The Celebration for a King, the Circumstance of the King, and the Concern of the King. I'm basically using Mark's account, but we're going to look at the other accounts to build this outline. Not everything is found in Mark, but the first point of the outline, the credentials of the King. When Christ is coming as King, he is going to be announced. Let's begin in the book of Matthew, and let's begin at chapter 1. Just a little overview of the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. Matthew is the gospel writer that presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the king. Often the credentials of a king include his lineage. He's got to come from the right line, from a royal line. Well, that's given in the gospel of Matthew in chapters 1 and 2 where you go all the way back to Abraham, showing that he's of the line of David and the birth of Christ, the Magi coming. The Magi, we say, are often kings. It could very very well have been kings. In chapter 2, kings coming to worship, the king. And so the Lord Jesus is the king of kings. And then chapter 2, or chapter 3 rather, is his announcement or annunciation with John the Baptist, John the Baptist being the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ and coming to announce his presence. We do that as we are going to transfer. We don't have a king in our country, so we're not real familiar with this, but countries that do will have some kind of a celebration or an announcement of the new king that's going to take the place of the one that either died or has passed off the scene for some reason or another. And so we have his annunciation there with the proclamation of John the Baptist and the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, with that, you have the voice that is heard. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. That's all in chapter 3. And then we want to make sure that this king is worthy of the position and has passed the test, has the experience to be a king. We can sort of make an analogy to that when we elect a president, right? We're supposed to be electing presidents that have the right lineage, that have the right credentials, that have passed the test, that have proven themselves. See, it's not just good for, providing, for electing presidents. This is good for electing anybody to any kind of an office, whether it's political or an office in the church or whatever it might be. Well, this is the king, Jesus, is tempted of the devil in chapter 4 and passes the test. So he has the credentials for being a king. So he must be a true citizen and of a royal line. Jesus, of course, was that. He must be chosen and accepted by the people and the proper authorities to fill that role. You know, there might be, a king might have, if there's the line, he might have several sons, but only certain ones are qualified to be the king. I don't know what all the rules are. And then, of course, he must be of proven character and experience to fit the role of the king. Well, the Lord Jesus is that. I think about the book of Hebrews as well. Hebrews has to do with the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he's without sin. He came to this world, to God in the flesh, to be like us, to be a man of like passions with us, to be able to experience life, and so fits the role of the king. But we're going to add some things to this, not just the lineage and the Annunciation and the test, but Jesus was not just the king, he was the Messiah. I think that adds some more things to it. And the Messiah must be validated by his miracles and by his messages. Let's go to Luke's Gospel now. Luke chapter 19, and we'll jump into Luke's record of the Palm Sunday incident. Luke chapter 19, this is found in verses 28 through 40. And the basic story there, Jesus is going from Bethany to the Mount of Olives, and he tells the disciples to go into the village and find this colt. Matthew adds the passage about the colt and its mother, and to bring the colt. And Luke adds the thought that it was a colt upon which no man had sat. So Jesus tamed the colt. They spread their garments on the colt and in the way, and they come nigh to the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 37, Luke 19, 37. And when he was come nigh, even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why? For all the mighty works that they had seen. Now remember, we are this. Palm Sunday is the beginning of the Passion Week. So these events that take place in the latter parts of the Gospel all take place in that last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to that, he's ministering in Galilee, some in Judea, and Samaria, preaching and performing miracles. Okay? So his fame went throughout all the land, the Bible says. And so they heard and they had seen the mighty works that he did. This is all part of his credentials. He is able to be the king because he can perform these mighty works. Now the miracles, the mighty works of course refers to the miracles that Jesus performed. And those are undeniable truths and proofs of his deity. You can't deny them. Eyewitnesses of the miracles. I saw him do this. I saw him do that. Many multitude of peoples that saw him perform the miracles. Undeniable. Okay, So just like with the resurrection, there are these many witnesses of the miracles that Jesus performed. Okay? So we're not talking about some made up mythical Jesus. This is a real person who performed these miracles. Many people, multitudes, saw him perform the miracles. And so the miracles give credentials for the king. But it's also his messages. The miracles and the messages were part of the credentials of this king. Let's go to Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Once again, we'll jump into the middle of this Palm Sunday story here in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 21, verses 10 And 11. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. A prophet is one who speaks the word of the Lord. All right, so the message is that he is preaching. You're in Matthew, but back up to chapter 7. This is not the record of the Palm Sunday, but earlier in his ministry, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, we read, it came to pass when Jesus had ended the sayings, the sayings of the messages that he preached, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Look also at Mark's record of that type of an incident, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Mark 1, 21, and then they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished, At his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. I don't know how the scribes taught. The scribes were those who taught the Old Testament. And it was probably just academic, without a whole lot of practical application, or at least without the authority that's mentioned in these verses. Jesus is teaching and preaching with authority, using the Old Testament, of course, to give that authority. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Bible says. And so he teaches with doctrine. Notice these verses have the word teaching in them and the word doctrine. Okay? So the messages that Jesus taught were filled with doctrine. And let's also look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Another rendition of the impact of the words of Jesus, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 32. I think it's the same incident we just read in Mark. We're going to use a different word at the end of the verse, 32. And he came down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. So his word was full of authority and full of power. Why is that so? Because the words of Jesus are true words. His was not the mere eloquence of an orator, although I'm sure that if we listened to the Lord Jesus, we would say he spoke eloquently. His Greek, or if he did indeed use Aramaic, was not broken or grammatically wrong. I think we could say that he would speak eloquently. He didn't murder the king's English. (laughs) He didn't speak English, but was not necessarily or merely an eloquent orator. What astonished them? That he spoke so well? Oh, listen to his voice. That's a wonderful voice. I'm sure it was. I can't imagine the voice of the Lord being a raspy voice. Revelation kind of tells you what the voice of the Lord sounds like. But they weren't astonished at his voice. What, what astonished them? The doctrine. The teaching. The content of the message. That's what should impress us when we listen to preaching. The content of the message. Now, it's good if a preacher has an eloquent voice. It's good if he uses good grammar and speaks well, and distinctly, and all of those things. But what ought to be impressive about the message is the doctrine, the teaching. Is it sound doctrine? We have a measure. They were astonished at this because they never heard such things before. We have a record of the Bible before us. It is all written for us. And so when a preacher now gets up, we shouldn't be astonished because, wow, we never heard that doctrine before, but... That doctrine is in keeping with the Bible. That's what should astonish us and the astonishing record of the Bible. So the credentials of the king, his miracles and his messages. Now we have the coming of the king. And as he comes here on Palm Sunday, he is, of course, riding into the city of Jerusalem on this cult. There are multitudes of worshipers. And when I think about the coming of the king, there's hope. So I want to give you signs of hope. These people had hope. First, there's a multitude of worshipers. I think it was suggested by Josephus that there would have been up to 2 million worshipers in Jerusalem for Passover. That's a lot of people coming to one city. A multitude of people. This multitude of people, this amount of worshipers tells us that the nation had hope. Now, of course, in the Old Testament... The males were supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship at these pilgrimage feasts. And Passover was one of them. So they were more or less required to come. But you can imagine as people were hoping and looking for a Messiah that, oh, he's not coming, he hasn't come. And so there could be a fading away of that. Much like we talked about in Sunday school, people fading away from the things of the Lord today because we don't have hope in the Lord. We've lost that hope. But the fact that these people were coming expresses to me at least that these people had hope in a Messiah. They're looking for someone to come as their king. And then, of course, let's go to Mark's account of this uh, triumphal entry. Mark chapter 11 and verse number 8. Mark chapter 11, verse number 8. We could compare this, of course, with all of the gospel records. Mark 11, and verse number 8. And they spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. The garments, we would say this is like a red carpet entrance. We prepare the way of the king. This is what Isaiah talks about preparing the way of the king, and I understand that when a king would come into a village or a town, there would be a a road crew that would go out to help straighten the road. You know, we're talking about a non-macadam road here, and so as the rains and the weather and the traffic would move across that road, you would get ruts in the road, and stones would appear and what have you, and so the road crew would come out, move the stones out of the way, fill in the ditches, and prepare the way of the king. That's the idea, okay? And that was a physical preparation. The idea of that, as Isaiah is using it, is to be a spiritual analogy. You and I are to prepare our hearts for the reception of the king. Take away the stony hearts, you know, or the, the rutted hearts that's going to make it difficult for the king to come. So this is like throwing out the red carpet and announcing the king. The disciples were typical, I believe, of the people of Israel. In Acts chapter 1 and verse number 6, they're looking for the kingdom of God. Now it's probably true that we've suggested this. I have, many other historians have and commentators, that the Jewish people were looking for a historical, political... Messiah, someone to come and deliver them from the Roman rule. The Romans were in rule at the time. I don't remember the exact history when Jesus was there, but later when Paul was there, we had, I think it was Domitian, one of the emperors that was uh, quite a tyrant. And so the Roman rule was there, and the Jews were under that oppressive rule and they felt that uh, they needed deliverance from that, so they're looking for that. But they're looking for a kingdom. They were looking for a physical kingdom, probably more so than a spiritual kingdom. Now, there is going to be a physical kingdom. Right? That's prophesied during what we call the millennium, the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the kingdom is also a spiritual kingdom, and that's more so what I think Jesus was talking about. But there. Throwing their garments in the way here for the Lord to enter in. They're expressing their hope in this coming Messiah. And then while you're here in Mark uh, 11, let's read verses 9 and 10. It says, They that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying... So there's a group ahead of the Lord and a group behind the Lord. And they're crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is a parade. Okay? There's a group of people parading through the streets of Jerusalem announcing and shouting Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. A multitude of people. Remember, we've got Two million plus worshippers added to the city of Jerusalem, folks that knew about the Lord. And they're using this term, Hosanna. It's used in praise. It means save now. And so they are looking at him being the Savior, the coming Savior. Of course, when he was born, Jesus was to be called Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. So the people were looking for a coming king. They had hope. The believer also, present believer, is looking for the second coming of the Lord. And this too brings hope. In fact, Paul calls it, when he writes to Titus, the blessed hope. All right. So, do you have the hope of the second coming of Christ? Are you looking for the Savior to come again? We talked in Sunday school about those who deny the deity of Christ. They're not looking for a coming Savior. They don't think He came the first time. So, they're not looking for a second coming And we tend to get the idea that, well, yes, we know what the Bible teaches about this. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but we think he's slack concerning his promise. And so we doubt, oh yeah, well, maybe he's coming, maybe not. But if we have hope in the Lord, the blessed hope, we're looking forward to that day. And much like these people, looking for the coming Messiah. Okay, and so they're throwing their garments in the way. I'm not sure that we literally ought to throw our garments out to the Lord, but we ought to be having an attitude of receiving him, throwing out the red carpet, as we would say. Now, let's also look at the celebration for the king. If you are looking for the king to come, then you should be in a celebratory mode or mood, whatever word is right there. The hope of the returning Christ is indeed cause for celebration. I know we as state Baptists, we don't like this word, celebration. The charismatic type Christians have kind of stolen that joy from us. We're not supposed to raise our hands. Doesn't the Bible talk about raising your hands? I get a little shaky when people raise their hands in church, but doesn't the Bible talk about that? Sure. And the excitement and the uh, celebratory. What they're doing here is taking the palm branches and cutting those down and throwing them in the way and waving them. All of this is in celebration. You did that to celebrate the victory. So not only are they saying, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. But by waving these palm branches, they are expressing the victory that would come. Looking, I'm sure, for this Messiah to deliver them from the tyrannical Roman rule. But we know that there's more to that. It's not just a physical kingdom that will be that, but it is a spiritual victory. We as a Christian, we think about the fact that Christ has won the victory. When he dies on that cross and rises again from the dead, that's victory. And so the palm branches are in anticipation of, I don't know whether the crowd understood this or not, But you and I ought to be able to do that. At least, I don't know that we have to have the palm branches or to actually wave them, but at least in our minds, we ought to be thinking victory. We're on the winning team. Christ is our leader. And He is victorious. And He can win the victory over sin today. He will eventually win the victory over everything and it will all be put at His feet. Submitted to His feet. So, The celebration for a king. We ought to celebrate that. And we ought to be in a celebratory mode for that. Or mood, I think is the proper word. And then let's look at the circumstance of the king. I'm thinking of the pomp and circumstance. Remember when you graduated from high school? Did they play that song? It gives you that sense of pomp and circumstance, right? And the pomp and circumstance, I think, was a purposeful presentation. You look at the Lord, and you can find this in all the accounts. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse number 2. Jesus is giving his disciples directions. He says, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. That was all planned. Jesus instructed his disciples regarding the details of the presentation. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew exactly what he wanted to happen. This is a purposeful presentation. It wasn't just a happenstance group of people that are saying, well, we like the miracles of Jesus, we we like his messages, Let's put him on a donkey and let's parade him through town. That's not the way it happened. This is Jesus purposely presenting himself as a king to the nation. He said, go find the colt. It's interesting if you compare in 1 Kings chapter 1 when Solomon became the king following David. Solomon was to ride on David's mule. The mule may have been something of uh, an eloquent, prestigious presentation. And we often think of the Lord riding on a colt as a lowly colt. That's the way Zechariah presents it. In fact, that's the next thing I want to look at. Not only was it planned, it was predicted. Go back to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter number 9. Zechariah prophesies the triumphal entry. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh. That's interesting, isn't it? Thy king cometh. So the riding into the city is a presentation of Jesus as the king. Thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Lowly. And riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So this pomp and circumstance is predicted by the prophet Zechariah. And then, of course, it's praised. We've seen that. And what's interesting about that, the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's go to Matthew's account of the triumphal entry again, Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 15. It says, and when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna. So evidently this parade okay, went from the Mount of Olives all the way into the city, into the temple. And the children are here crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were sore displeased. Jesus does not tell the people along the way to stop honoring him. He's the one that planned the cults and sat upon the cult. Now the people put their garments there, all right? But he did not tell them to stop honoring him as the coming king. He was the coming king. We notice how the Pharisees rejected him as such. There in verse 15, they were sore displeased. The chief priests and scribes. In Luke's gospel, Luke 19:39. Chapter 19 and verse number 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees from among the people said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Tell them to stop honoring you as the king. He didn't do that. So, he's allowing all this praise. This is a purposeful, planned presentation that Jesus wants to happen. Is he celebrated as the King of kings and Lord of lords in my life? That's the answer as we think about Palm Sunday and throwing uh, palm branches and garments at him and shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Do we really, in our hearts, honor Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords? Is he the King of our lives? Is he the Lord? Is he the boss? This is Dr. Lee Hennise, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached the church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org, and let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again. <laughs>